Behind every song is a voice, and every voice is a story. The journeys behind the voices brings life to the music that shapes each of us. Brought to you by Visible Music College and in partnership with the largest online Christian music site new released today, this is Behind the Tunes, and I am your host, Austin Black. Together, we will explore those journeys, the journeys behind the artists that shape the landscape of today's music. This week is part two of our interview with Mark Stewart, the founding lead singer of the band Audio Adrenaline. This week, we'll explore the challenges of life on the road, writing songs amidst the struggles of life, and the ever-popular Rapid Fire. Again, we're back here with Mark Stewart, formerly of Audio Adrenaline, now a speaker and author with his book, Losing My Voice to Find It. Uh, so, Mark, you guys uh, went on uh, to release a number of albums after Don't Censor Me, which, uh, again, had Big House on it. Uh, Bloom came out in 96. I wore that one out. Uh, now, that's when you really kind of, that's when you really got back to your rock roots. Is that, would you say then, or was it Don't Censor Me? Yeah, probably. We, we started heading back towards our roots on Don't Censor Me. We, we, um, we got a little bit cantankerous or rebellious, and we're just like, hey, we're going to start making guitar-oriented music. We were still didn't have a drummer on Don't Censor Me, so it wasn't a pure rock and roll record. Yeah. Um, it was still kind of experimental and, I guess, digital, if you will, for lack of a better term. Um, but when we, when we made the Bloom record, we decided if we're going to do this, we, we want to do it the way we feel like we're supposed to do it. And that was a rock and roll band. Yeah. So the drummer from Jeff Moore in the Distance was named Greg Harrington. He's still named Greg Harrington. <laughs> um, he's, um, we called him Frisch because he looked like the guy in the restaurant, the Frisch's big boy. Oh, yeah. uh, but that's a, kind of an unnecessary side note. Anyway, he could play <laughs> drums like crazy. And he's still one of the best drummers in Nashville. He's playing right now for Martina McBride and just a, a killer guy. So we we kind of commandeered him and we're like, hey, let's let's write some music. So we we got into a we rented a, a, a storage unit in Antioch, which is the suburb of Nashville. It's not super nice. Um and we played as a garage band. Um, in the in the heat of like 1994 or 1995 somewhere now, for like three months we just pounded out these songs and we said we're we're gonna be a rock and roll band. So we submitted these songs. At that time, the cool part is Forefront Records. Eddie DeGarmo from a band called DeGarmo came back. He started Forefront, but he came back as the main A and R guy, and so he was a rock and roll guy. So he's like, man, these are great songs. You guys just sold like. I think a half a million records on Don't Censor Me because of the song Big House, which was a guitar-oriented song. He's like, why don't you go make a rock and roll guitar record, but you can't do it in Nashville because Nashville, everybody here, it's, it, at the time it was more vocal music or pop music. Mm. He goes, why don't you go to Memphis? And I got a guy that he was buddies with at Ardent Studios yeah. named John Hampton. 
and he said he, he'll he's like the the band whisperer and he's he'll he will make a rock and roll record with you and it was the perfect call it was the perfect storm the perfect again anointed moment where we had spent all this time writing these songs as a band in a garage with no air conditioning we go to memphis this rock and roll city you know elvis and johnny cash and all this great blues that come out of there and and we got hooked up with this producer who had, who had made zz top he just came off the gin blossoms record and he said i'll make a rock and roll record but you got to listen to these rules he said if you can't play it on stage it's not going on the record oh wow and he said i'm going to teach you how to basically make a record with space on it and and he goes you your records are just filled up with all these beats and samples and blah, blah, blah. He goes, just go in and make a simple rock and roll record and let the song speak for itself. So he taught us not only how to make a record, but really what was required to make a great rock and roll record was great songs. And uh, there in Memphis, we started to put it together. We were also working with another guy in Nashville that did a couple songs. And we said, he did the same thing. We just kind of stripped it down and made a, a real rootsy rock and roll album and that's how bloom came about and a lot of people think it's our best record and some people think it's the best christian rock album like pure christian rock album ever made you know there's been a lot of great rock i don't think it is but, i mean i think jesus freaks killer there's a wide heart i mean there's tons of great bands but a lot of people that's their favorite and i'm like that's that's great but it had a lot to do with eddie DeGarmo making that call the producer John Hampton and just us sitting in a garage pounding out as a band, which is crazy. Now, did but fun. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. Did, did you record it at Ardent? Yeah, it was recorded there in Memphis at Ardent. Yeah, that's just down the street from me. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I never knew that. Um, this album I wore out back in the day on the CD player just down the street from me. Yeah, um, there, was a, there was a sandwich place we used to go to all the time running kind of across the street or yeah. It's called Huey's or. Oh, yeah. Huey's. Absolutely. Yeah. Huey's. Uh, we got to get them we'll to sponsor the show now. But uh, yeah, huge big burger place and sandwich place yeah. here in Memphis. And so they kind of franchise out now. Um, well, really cool. Man, I, I had no idea that that album was recorded right here in Memphis. Uh, yeah. Unbelievable. Well, you go from you go from Bloom into some kind of zombie, uh, which was a record I really loved. And then but then you begin to you almost see a transition for you guys as you go into Underdog and lift and worldwide and until my heart caves in what was the transition like for for you guys uh to i guess you you were still a rock band but begin to transition to, in some ways to a little softer side of things is that an accurate assessment yeah yeah i would say so i think zombie was our most alternative rock album you know and you know i i think that album really sonically musically kind of stand up as well as Bloom does. Uh, and then we started to make more, I guess, more pop rock stuff, stuff that was more accessible to radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really enjoyed that too. Uh, you know, for me, I liked, I think for us, we had this heavy bass, this kind of with uh, Bloom and with Zombie that we, we started to really stretch our audience. We added a little bit more pop beats and a little more funkiness back into it. Kind of more back to the way, the way Big House was kind of formulated. 
but we still do some heavier songs on there just to widen our demographic and then make our show kind of accessible to a wide audience. And, and that was the coolest thing about Audio Adrenaline in, in terms of live shows is we would have kids that were in junior high, we would have metal heads that just want us to play hard rock stuff like we're a band or um, stuff off bloom like I'm not the king. And then we would have people that wanted us to play kind of more pop stuff like Get Down or Hands and Feet all the way to songs like Ocean Floor. Yeah. So for us, our new boundaries just became we wanted to be a rock band that could play and sing anything. You know, and our kind of focus was less about the musicality of it and more about, I guess, the message of the song and the fact that it was just this, you know, kind of free for all, fun, rock and roll, powerful message. And that, that kind of became, I guess, the later on the theme of how we would craft our records and our concerts. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think sometimes we overthink um, on, on the fan side of things, um, the music, but I love the picture you painted where really what you guys did was created so much space for so many people who love Jesus to be able to fit together um, and to enjoy in the same show um, really multiple generations. And that is uh, just enormous credit to you guys to, to see that um, and to then to go out and to, to figure out how do we create that? How do we make this? Yeah, like we're a middle schooler, you know, and, and a middle-ager can come to the same show um, and, and love Jesus the same and really bring people together. Um, and that's, that's just really fascinating to hear. Yeah, it, it, I don't know if it was, you know, how smart it was. I guess it was uh, a good idea because it, it definitely widened our demographic. You know, we're never going to be um, a band that's like, oh, they were the king of the genre for, you know, that's not going to, ha- unless you call it the youth group genre, I guess. <laughs> um, because we were pretty much hard to pinpoint in a genre. We didn't really dominate a genre. We weren't like, you know, uh, alternative or we weren't indie rock or we weren't this, or we weren't pop rock, we weren't heavy metal. But there were elements of all that. And I think for us, yeah, that was more important than to be defined by genre was, hey, we want to just, we want to have fun. We'll have great guitar, rock music, whether that's 70s, 80s, you know, whatever, worship music, whatever. But we just want to point people to Jesus and do it in, in a way that was, I guess, turned all the way up, for lack of a better phrase. It, we were we were pretty much wanted to live up to the term audio adrenaline. Yeah. And, and that's what we did. Well, you, so you guys formed initially, you know, kind of the late 80s there. Um, and then expanded all the way into the to two thousands with you personally. In essence, in many ways, it seems like you you kind of grew up on the road, um, and in some ways, grew up on the stage in the spotlight. What were some of the challenges um, that you look back and 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 see of growing up uh, in many ways and maturing with a life on the road? Ooh, there's a lot. I think um, you know it's definitely hard on family life. We had. Uh, you know, some of the guys drop out because it was def- it was hard on marriages. Uh, it's hard on your spiritual life. But, you know, there's not a lot of connectivity back in the 90s. It wasn't like cell phones or social media. I know that sounds so bizarre to people today. But you live kind of isolated out there. And without, 
really being super intentional with either hiring a road pastor or stopping into churches or just digging in. You, you being isolated in a Christian walk is really uh, scary and really, um, I guess, can be really feeble or weak and, and can cause failure. And I think that was something that, you know, we experienced at some level was just, man, the, you, you get, you get almost depressed or isolated out there because you're almost by yourself. Um, and there's not a lot of people pouring into you. So today the music seems a lot different um, because of social media. I think because of, you know, you can watch your home church live. You can, you know, probably even comment during church, you know, if you have to, uh, it's a lot different. Um, and you can stay in communication with your family a lot better than what it, what it used to be. Uh, also, we used to tour a lot more back in the day, you would go on 60 city tours or you might be gone two or three months. Now, most bands come home to Nashville every week, which is great. Um, I, you know, growing up too, I think for us, you know, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in more of a performance based, you know, like a lot of people, most people did, you know, from the eighties and nineties where you didn't really say it, but you really felt like you were earning your salvation a lot of times. And because of that, you would walk on stages, feeling inadequate um and like an imposter i think that's pretty much with the book that losing my voice to find talks a lot about that sometimes we felt or specifically me felt like at any time you know someone's going to pull back the curtain and people are going to see that we weren't good enough musically we weren't good enough spiritually to be who we people thought we were you know uh so we felt inadequate but now as I look back, you know, I realize that's why people connected to us because we wrote from a place of inadequacy and transparency. We, we, had, we had to push into it, but we eventually got there and we, we started to sing about it. And I think, if anything, a lot of people in that time, that decade started to connect with our message of, hey, we're not even close to being perfect. So we would sing rock and roll songs about that. Like sometimes I'm, I'm a man of God, you know, ocean floor was a song about the mistakes I've made, all these things. And people would connect with our band because of that. Um, so the greatest fear of being found out and being maybe cast away was actually the thing that I think we, we just said, Hey, we're going to have to like pull the curtain back ourselves. And then that became the thing that really bonded us to audiences and I guess to even go further on what we were talking about before, our themes were about being the underdog, about being broken. And um, people connected with that. Uh, people could see themselves on stage, maybe not even musically, but because they are broken too. And I think that gave Audio Adrenaline even a broader platform. And it was, it was cool to watch that happen because... You know, at the same time, I was starting to lose my voice in the middle of all that. And that was also contributing to how we were transitioning as a band musically because we couldn't be as heavy anymore because my voice was a little scratchy and heavier. And we started to rely on guitar player Tyler's voice, which was more pristine. And um, so it, it shifted us musically as well. You know, to, to hear you talk about just the idea of feeling like an imposter, feeling like, you know, what if we're found out? And and I think the reason, you know, the people connected with that when you begin to write those songs 
is because that's the gospel. You know, it, and, it's, and it's just fascinating to hear you from a musical standpoint, just to break it down in that way of it just shows the power of the gospel. Um, it shows the power of Christ that when we're just honest and we're just genuine with with who we are and where we are and understand the reality that, that I am not, but he is, that it gives people just an opportunity to grasp onto that. And um, rather than to feel like uh, we have to live up to this thing that is literally impossible um, and the whole reason that Christ came to die uh, was because we could not live up to it. And, and it's, it's, just, it's just a beautiful picture to hear you paint that um, and to see people be able to, to, to connect with you in that way. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And you're right. It, it is a, it's a testimony. You know, when we get transparent, we open up our hearts, we share our testimonies, power in that. And everybody has a testimony. And it's, they're all powerful and they're all beautiful because God writes amazing stories in everybody's lives. And I think, yeah, you know, music was coming out of this kind of, it wasn't superficial, but it was kind of cheerleading. It was more pristine. It was, the church was more looked at as perfect. And the 90s Christian rock scene, I think, helped disassemble that along with some great authors, you know, because a lot of us were listening and reading, like, you know, Brennan Manning and yep. kind of hanging out with Rich Mullins. And and we just understood that this, that we, we can't keep singing and setting the precedent of perfection uh, on ourselves, but uh, just on Jesus and the idea that the gospel is, and the church is for broken people, not sick people. It's, it's for people that are need healing and then all of a sudden it just, yeah, just it broke apart and broke wide open at the same time, which was great. Do you look back and, and, and is it just humbling to see the ways that God allowed you to be a part of in many ways um, uh, helping the church as a whole uh, to, to come into <coughs> to a, a more accurate picture of, of what it's supposed to be? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was humbling. Just the fact that we were a band was humbling. I feel like... Right. You know, the the whole, our whole career just felt like a miracle to me, uh, looking back on it now. And, you know, what we've done post-Audio A in terms of, you know, our work in Haiti and working with kids and, you know, in crisis. Uh, and the fact that our whole career was based on a big house was really lyrically based on a song that kids sang in Haiti about their father having a house with rooms and food and you know, that the whole thing now, when I look back on it, I can see where God was given us a platform to utilize it to help people. Um, so, yeah, it, it becomes really quite clear and quite evident that the life I lived really had nothing to do with the decisions and how hard I worked or whatever. It was just God saying, all right, I'm going to use you in, in a miraculous and, and crazy way. And the whole journey was just about surrendering to that. Mm. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of being 51. You get to look back and see it. So when people ask me, what, you know, if you come and speak at my college, what are you going to tell these kids? First, it'd be like, quit being so afraid and quit being so worried about your future. Um, just completely surrender to God and get ready for the ride of your life because your dad runs the universe. And mm. that is... The story of Audio A, it was my story, and it's really everybody's story. 
is learning how to let go and surrender to God because his plan for your life is is beautiful and big and powerful. Just let it, let him have it. Again, and that's kind of what happened to me. Yeah, I, I love it. Again, we're here with Mark Stewart, uh, former audio adrenaline and author of the book, Losing My Voice, uh, to find it. And it really is, it, it sounds like, again, like you said, you're 51 looking back. And to be able to say, wow, um, there, there's there's much of a ride left, uh, but uh, what a ride has been. And, and I think so often we get so caught up trying to figure out what the next thing is or what God wants me to do tomorrow um, or 10 years or 15 years from now uh, that we forget to just enjoy the journey with him. And, uh, and that's what he wants us oh, to yeah. do. Amen. Well, in, uh, in 2006, again, you announced you're retiring uh, because of these issues with your vocal cords. How long of a lead up was that? Was it something that came on suddenly um, or was it something you were kind of fighting back and forth for a while? It was a while. Um, I started having vocal issues even as far back as Bloom record. Oh, wow. Um, and this is going to all, I mean, it's definitely written about in my book, but what, what happened was I started to take steroid shots. Um, and so basically prednisone, it, it takes the swelling down in your vocal cords. Like if you have inflammation, people, you get a steroid shot. So what happens is your, your, your vocal cords get inflamed after a tour, after singing on a record or whatever. But if you could take prednisone, all of a sudden it, it strengthens and shrinks that inflammation, strengthens the vocal cords to where your vo my voice just sounded like it never had before ever. Hmm. So when I go back and listen to Free Ride, and even some of the stuff on Zombie and Underdog, um, and and a little bit of Lift, there was a four record time period where my voice was raspy, but it was also powerful. Um, so the raspiness was the effect of my, vo my voice being worn out. And then what, what normally would have happened is my vocal cords would have been swollen to the point where I have to take a break or stop or I couldn't sing. But they were raspy. I'd get steroid shots. The, the swelling would go down, but the raspiness remained and the strength would be even elevated. So all of a sudden, I, I sang like I could never sing before. Like I would go in and <laughs> sing like free ride on bloom you know it sounds like um rod stewart or steve perry from journey all of a sudden the heroes who i'd always wanted to sound like i sounded like because i was taking these steroids but and i would kept getting shots you know you can only get so many shots a year so you had to kind of time it out for a record or the beginning of a tour but then eventually my doctor's like you can't keep doing this and the effectiveness of the steroid would wear out. And then on top of that, exacerbating all that was the fact that I kept overusing my voice when naturally my voice, because of the swelling that should have been there, I should have been resting it. I'm causing more damage because I continue to sing at a high level because the issues are masked by the steroids. So what's happening, I'm creating more damage to my voice through that time period. And then eventually I, what the, the power would diminish, the control would diminish, and my voice would just raspy and I couldn't hit the notes anymore. I couldn't, my range shrank. And then eventually it would take my, even my speaking voice, as you can tell, you know, 
and I developed an incurable vocal disorder called spasmodic dysphonia, where the muscles around my vocal cords spasm when I try to uh, sing or speak, um, you know, with any kind of level of volume at all. And um, so then it, it just started diminishing, diminishing, diminishing to where I couldn't do shows. And then I lost my love to sing because it was, it was just embarrassing. It was frustrating. It was like this curse. Now I'm like, here's your career. And the one thing you can't do is the one thing that I had to do to make a living. It was the one thing I, I had to do to do ministry and I couldn't do it anymore. And it was like so frustrating. And I became depressed. I started to isolate. And all through that, through that time, um, I'm also, and anxiety also creates, makes the symptoms worse. So the more nervous I got about my voice, the, the more affected it was. Okay. So all that was contributing to the downfall of my voice. At the same time, I'm losing my marriage. I had no kids, but my marriage was falling apart. And that was creating anxiety for me. And um, I, there was just a lot of uh, just stuff going on that was creating a bad scene for me. And I, and I was keeping the marriage thing uh secret from the guys because I didn't want them to know about it because um, they they would have been really angry and just like uh, you know and, and scared and just worried so I kept it from them as long as I could and eventually I had to tell them that and at the same time we were shutting the band down because of my voice and it was bad it was just a all around everything in my life was falling apart everything that I thought I had control of I was losing control of my marriage, my career, my voice. Um, and again, this word surrender, I, I had to just surrender it all to the Lord and just say, all right, this is all gone. Um, and then honestly, I really believed at that point in my life that I still believed in God, but I believed he had nothing good for me left that, you know, he was moving on to somebody else to bless. It was somebody else's turn for him to, be friends with because he was just done using me and my life would just be diminished and kind of full of despair until I died. Uh, so I, um, I knew how to make a change. I started going to Haiti and um, start reconnecting with my parents and doing mission work. And, and it was there in Haiti and kind of turning to serve others that God showed me that he still had good things for me to do and there was still a purpose for my life. And there was a moment where it all came kind of flooding back and I saw God do a redemptive work in my life in an instant, ironically in a Ford Bronco. It's kind of in the book, you have to read about it, but wow. he showed how good he was to me and his intentions. And miraculously, I knew that every moment, good and bad, every song, every concert, every broken note, every fear, every trial, that he was there with me the whole time and that he had good things for me still. And um, that's when my life kind of turned around. I surrendered again to him. It was almost like being born again, again. Um, 
because before that I was I was working for God kind of building I guess my kingdom for him rather than being a part of what he was doing for me and in me and through me and um, the one thing I learned is God doesn't suffer anything to get our attention to draw us closer to him whether it's losing a voice he doesn't suffer that he doesn't suffer a career he doesn't suffer a marriage he he will and can use all those things to bring you closer to him and that's what he did for me so in losing my voice to find it it's more about i mean it's yes it's about losing my voice to find it as a voice for kids but it's also losing everything that i thought was important to find everything that was truly significant in the father through surrender Goodness is again. This is Mark Stewart, formerly of Audio Adrenaline, uh, author of the book "Losing My Voice to Find It." Uh, you can find it markstewartmedia.com, uh, Amazon, all the places that you buy books. Um, as you can tell, it's an unbelievable story, uh, and so it's a book to be read and and to see that that God's always with us, um, and and nothing's ever wasted, um, and He's always with us, and He can out of the rubble uh, can bring redemption.
right, we're back here with Mark Stewart, formerly of the band Audio Adrenaline, now a speaker and author with his book, Losing My Voice to Find It. Mark, we got one last thing I want to do here just for fun today, just some rapid fire. Are you ready? I hope so. I'm not too quick. That's all right. That's all right. We'll see if you survive. Texting Texting or calling? Texting. Last song you downloaded on your phone or to your iTunes? I, I can't even remember. All right, we'll move on. What's your favorite holiday? Christmas. Favorite junk food? Oh, Snickers. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife. We won't tell. We'll keep that. We'll, we'll edit that out. Do you snore? If I'm really tired, yes. But rarely am I that tired. I so. got you. Well, right. You know, sometimes. I say yes. Right, your favorite TGIF, TGIF show from back in the day? Uh, I, maybe cash. Seinfeld. All right. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Only in a pinch. <laughs> Only in a pinch. <laughs> I try not to, but sometimes you just, you just got to. got to go. Name one of the seven dwarfs. I say uh, sleepy. Do you identify with them? No, you just heard me. I'm not sleepy. That's right. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most useless talent you have? Oh, gosh. Uh, I can juggle. Really? How many can you juggle? I can only do three, but, you know, it's a talent. I can do a Rubik's Cube. Can you? And, uh, yeah. Have but you anybody done? can do it. You just got to learn the algorithms. But it's pretty useless. You show somebody, and they're like, who cares? <laughs> like, well, I thought it would be impressive, but well, I, I guess not. I'm impressed because I don't know the algorithms. How many have you done in your life, you think? Rubik's Cube? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like that no, not really. I kind of got into it for a while. Now I don't even do it anymore. But my wife does it. She rem- I can't remember the algorithms. She still does. So <laughs> I'm looking at them right now. That's why she's got two next to her bed. I'm like, what's wrong with my wife? She's got two Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> like, what? Is- I must be so boring that she's turned to the Rubik's Cube. She's over here just, <laughs> rather, than, rather than having a conversation, she's just doing Rubik's Cube after Rubik's Cube. Like, wow. This is what we've come to. That's humbling. That's all right. That's all, you bounce back. You bounce back. All right. What uh, what color is your toothbrush? Uh, green right now. All right. In the like mo- it's not it's not changing colors. It's, it's yeah. just yeah. green. It's like it's not a mood toothbrush. Yeah, it's not moody. It's just I guess I bought a green one. All right. I don't know why I said it right now. All right. In the movie about your life, what actor plays Mark Stewart? Kevin Bacon. Rock and roll. All right. What's your favorite movie ever? Jaws. Oh, there you go. A specific <laughs> one or all of them? No, none of them are any good except the first one. Jaws 2 <laughs> is horrible, and the rest of them are worse. It's Jaws 1, Steven Spielberg, and the first one came out in 1975, I think, 76. Richard Dreyfus. come on, that, that's, that's a beautiful movie. Did you go to the movies to watch it? Yes. Could you could you swim in water for a while after that? No. Yeah. I still am afraid. <laughs> Unless I can see the bottom, but I'm still shaking. I, I understand that completely. Hey, Mark, you survived rapid fire, man. Listen, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, again, this is Mark Stewart, uh, formerly, of, formerly of Audio Adrenaline, um, now the author of the book, Losing My Voice to Find It. Again, you can pick it up at markstewartmedia.com or Amazon or anywhere you can buy books just google it and find it and pick it up mark what what's next for you man well right now 
I'm supposed to be on tour with Mercy Me, uh, but everything's kind of shut down right now, you know. Um, so I think we'll kick that back up in the fall, um, doing some dates as a speaker with Mercy Me. And my buddy Ryan Stevenson, we're doing a storytellers tour um, where I might, you know, screech out a couple of songs, but with him, you know, and we tell some stories because he has a book that's coming out as well. So I'm just doing some touring and speaking and uh, continuing to work in Haiti with the Hands and Feet Project, our organization there, and, you know, helping kids. That's what I love doing and hanging out with my life and my two kids, Crystal and Journey, my wife, Pages. Well, man, that's what I love to do. Awesome. Well, listen, that sounds wonderful. We look forward to, to seeing you back out and about. And, uh, and best to you and your family and, and safety in every way, uh, especially in this time. And yeah. Mark, thank you so much for uh, your time and look forward to connecting with you down the road. All right, Austin, take it easy, bro. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Behind the Tunes with Austin Black, produced by Grayson Rucker. A special thank you to our sponsor, Visible Music College, a music and worship school that trains and disciples students for the music industry and the church. You can learn more about them at visible.edu. And you can reach the show at behindthetunes at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next time as we go Behind the Tunes.